All right, if you've got a Bible, I invite you to grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 19. We'll be picking up in verse 11 that Sarah just read just a few minutes ago. If you are a guest with us this morning, especially a first-time guest, let me say a special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are uh, truly honored that you will give of your time this morning to gather with us. I'd love a chance to get to say hello to you and shake your hand, maybe out by the fireplace on your way out if you've got some time afterwards. But thank you for being here with us. Uh, for everyone who is here every Sunday, good to see all of you guys. Uh, this morning we've got uh, Luke 19, um, and it's a bit stinging. Um, at least it was stinging for me a little bit preparing the message this week, and what that usually means is then it's stinging for you afterwards. So that's the way the Lord works. He beats me up, and then through the Holy Spirit, he beats you up maybe. So we'll see how that goes this morning. But when I was in college uh, back at Georgia Tech, I took, um, I, I was a business major, uh, management, Bachelor of Science in Management. And um, one of my classes, I got a, a minor in finance. And in the very first finance class that I took, we had uh, kind of a program that gave us $100,000 in fake money that we had to manage across the semester in the stock market and part of our grade at the end of the semester would be how well we did in the market. And so if we made a profit, we would get, you know, a higher grade. If we didn't do so well, we would get a lower grade based upon that. And so that made all of us all of a sudden just start watching the ticker all the time, uh, get Wall Street Journal and start reading about forecasts and futures and what's going on in foreign markets, trying to predict where we could buy low and sell high and those sorts of things. So it just came all about that you know, over the course of the semester, because again, at the end of the semester, we were going to have to give an account for how we managed that money that had been given to us. We didn't come up with the money. It had been given to us. It had been entrusted to us. And so we were going to have to give an account for how we managed that investment that had been made in us. And in the parable that we've got this morning, that's exactly the main point that Luke is hammering home. All right, we've got this parable that's historically been called the parable of the ten minas. And sometimes people will look to Matthew 25, if, if you know your Bible, and they'll look at the parable of talents and they'll think that these two things are synonymous. And while there are some overlapping similarities, they drive home a completely different thought. Right? In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and the whole point of that is talking about the different giftings that God has given to the church. And so that's why the word talent, which refers to a large sum of money, has been adopted into English to refer to an ability or a gifting. And so we would say things to Chad like, Chad is incredibly talented you know, at music. Doesn't mean he's rich, it means he has abilities, it means he has gifts. And so Matthew 25, parable of the talents, that's why he gives five talents of gold to one person, two talents to another, one to another. There's these different giftings, there's these different abilities as it relates to talents that God gives his people. When you come over into the book of Luke and we're talking about the parable of the ten minas, it, is not, it has nothing to do with talents because everybody gets the same amount of minas. Everybody gets one. All right. And so it's not about talent. It's rather about an investment that we are to steward. He's got these 10 servants and he's going to give each one of them a mina and he wants them to steward it well. And the mina, the, the investment that's been given to us is the gospel. And the question is, how are we stewarding the gospel? Are we stewarding it faithfully? 
or unfaithfully? Or as Jesus is going to point out, are we being a good servant with it? Or are we being a wicked servant? And so that's what we've got before us this morning with this parable of the ten minas. And when we say mina, just to kind of give you an idea, that refers to three months worth of wages. And so if we're going to just go with a $60,000 income across the year, that's $5,000 per month. So it's kind of entrusting these guys, if you're going to bring it in today's terms, $15,000, all right? And he tells them, go engage in business until I come. And Jesus is going to take this physical example dealing with money and work and stewardship in that way, and he's going to relate it to spiritual investment. That we are to spiritually invest and earn a spiritual profit. Living a life of holiness, seeing people come to Christ, building up the kingdom. That's what this is all about. And so every follower of Christ is a steward of the gospel. Whether that's the Apostle Paul, St. Patrick, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Billy Graham... Every single one of us in here who is a Christian, it's not a question of if, it's just a question of how we're doing with this. We are stewards of the gospel, and Jesus gives this command to every one of us, engage in business until I come. And so again, it's not a matter of giftings in the parable of the ten minas, it's investment. That we must invest our lives for Jesus. We don't just sit soaking sour. We invest our lives and we live for Christ. All right. So that's the driving point. We must invest our lives for Jesus. Driving point of this entire parable. But that's heightened when you recognize the context in which Jesus is teaching this. Because the whole reason that Jesus even goes into this is because of some confusion as it relates to the kingdom of God. And so number one in your notes and almost kind of prefatory to the thrust, uh, the thrust of the message is we need to have some kingdom reminders, okay? And so number one in your notes, kingdom reminders. And so look at verse 11 again with me. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jer- Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Incidentally, this is probably he's probably pulling something like we would out of the newspaper. This is a historical event that he's uh, incorporating, telling a story about that related to Archelaus, who was the son of King uh, Herod the Great when he was becoming king. I'm not going to get into the details because that would cloud it, but he's it's kind of like Spurgeon used to say, preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another. Jesus is kind of doing that here. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. All right, but Jesus is going to apply this to himself. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. And so the whole reason Jesus is telling this parable is because people were thinking that the kingdom of God was about to come in its fullness, like right then, immediately. All right. That's why, as he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so Jesus tells this parable in order to teach people that the kingdom is here in that the king is here, but the restoration of all things will come at a later date. 
And so for you and I, what this means is we are living between the times. We're living between the time of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And so back in chapter 17, if you were here, we spent some time camping out on this idea of the kingdom of God. What is it? What does it look like? And this idea of an already but not yet paradigm. That there are already aspects of the kingdom that are at play in the world today because Jesus has come. He has defeated sin. But it won't fully be realized until Jesus comes again and brings a new heavens and a new earth and God's people are living in God's place under God's rule and blessing for all eternity. And so verse 12, he, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And Jesus is applying this to himself. He said, therefore, a nobleman, this is Jesus, went into a far country, heaven. All right? Jesus would die, resurrect, ascend back into heaven. So a nobleman, Jesus, went into a far country, heaven, to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So he's already the king, but the kingdom he's going to, re- he's going to receive is people. It's people coming into the kingdom. People repenting of sins and trusting Jesus and being gathered into his kingdom. Being gathered into his flock. And then someday he would return. And so through the parable, again, Jesus is trying to help people understand that there's going to be some time in between his first coming and his second coming. He's trying to explain that there's going to be an interim period of time, that the king will leave for a while, build his kingdom, and then he's going to come again. And so that's the context of the parable. That's why he told it. But then the thrust of his parable is what do we as his followers do in the interim? So here's why I told it. Hey, guys, there's going to be a big break between my first coming and my second coming. But then the thrust of it, what do we do during that time? What is the church to do during that time? And the answer is we're to invest our lives for Jesus. In verse 12 again, he said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, one each, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. And so mission, all right, sharing the love of Christ, living for Christ, is expected of Christ's followers. It's expected that we would engage in spiritual business Gospel business, seeking to see men and women come into the kingdom and living a holy life. It's expected that we would live on mission until he comes again. And so number two in your notes then is mission is expected. Mission is expected. We are expected to engage in gospel business. Calling ten of his servants. Let's just get the whole parable now. Let's just read for a while. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, all right, when Christ comes again, having received the kingdom, all these people who've become believers, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained. By doing business. 
The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Well done again. It's the implicit, you know, reply. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow, what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. So he's not agreeing with him here. Notice there's a question mark there. He's saying like, so if that's the case, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so you've got this expectation of Jesus, verse 15, that spiritual, that, you know, what would be gained by doing business? Jesus wants a spiritual profit from his people. And so we've got these three servants here, two good ones and one wicked one, two good ones who live on mission. They invest their lives for Jesus and one wicked one who does not. And so what I'd like to do is I would like for us to take these two and we're just going to refer to them as two guys, a good servant and a, and a wicked servant. And I'd like for us to take them and lay them across our life. And analyze our life based upon these guys, OK, not what we know. Many of you in here have a, you know, a long church background. You know what you're supposed to do. You know how we're supposed to live. I want you to put that aside but based upon how you actually live day in, day out, as you lay these two guys across your life, the good servant and the wicked servant. Who are you? Who am I? And so let's do that. Let's look at these guys. And so you've got the two good servants. All right. They produced a profit. So they took what the king had given to them, $15,000, we're going to call it. And one guy produced 150000 Another guy produced 75000 So they made a better grade in the finance class than I did. All right? They produced a profit. I didn't. That, I'll stop. And so the good, the good servant spiritually then is the person who recognizes that all he has has been given to him. All right, these guys, it was just given to them. They didn't do anything for it. They just gave it to them. And so it's not really theirs at all. They just steward it. All right? And so good stewards understand that everything that they have has been given to them, and it's been given to them to produce a spiritual profit. And so my money is not my money. It's God's money, and he gave it to me to produce a spiritual profit. My house is not my house. 
God gave it to me to produce a spiritual profit. My truck is not my truck. It belongs to God. And he has given it to me to use to produce a spiritual profit. My wife, my children. Everything that we have, our friends, our physical healthy body or our broken unhealthy body given to us by God to produce a spiritual profit. Everything given to us by God, for God, for a spiritual profit. And according to this text, Jesus is teaching his followers that we will be held accountable for what we do with what we've been given. He's going to return one day and he's going to say, what did you do with my mina? What did you do with the gospel? And, and as it relates, I mean, listen, people coming to Christ or not, that's out of our hands, right? God saves, not our persuasive speech. God's the one who does that. So that's out of our hands. But we have to at least be striving. We have to at least try. I've got to strive to live a holy life and I've got to strive to see people come into the kingdom and lead people to Jesus because I love God and I love people. Jesus told us to do that in the great commandment. And so we've got to strive, we've got to try. But the wicked servant, he doesn't even try. Look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. And so notice here, the wicked servant, he's being, you know, called a wicked servant, not because of bad things he did actively, but because he didn't do anything. And so it's not just a sin of commission where we do things actively. There's also sins of omission where we don't do what we should do. And so a lot of us think, you know, living for Christ just means there's a list of things that we don't do. So we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't smoke, and we don't go with girls who do, right? We don't do those things. And so if we live that way, you know, and just avoid certain things and don't engage in certain things, then we're good. The problem with that is that the Bible also teaches that there are things that if we avoid them, we're living in sin. So the book of James talks about if you know the good to do and you don't do it, that's sin. And so we sin not just by commission actively doing, but also by omission actively not doing something we should. It's that idea that inspired, that, that inspired uh, Martin Luther King Jr. to say it's always right to do what's right. And so again, the wicked servant, he's not actively like doing something. We'd look at it and be like, oh, he's a sinner. You know, his sin is that he doesn't do anything at all. That's his sin. He took the money, he wrapped it in a handkerchief and put it under his mattress. And so we need to ask ourselves then spiritually, is this what we do? Is this what we do with the gospel, with the investment Christ has made in us? Well, I go to church sometimes, but I'm not really, you know, plugged into a group or anything. You're wrapping God's mind in a handkerchief. I got baptized as a kid, but I'm not really a member anywhere. Don't read my Bible. Don't 
pray except if I need something really bad. Don't give my time, my money, my talent to God and to others. You wrapped it in a handkerchief. I want my kids to pick up values, so I'm going to have them in church, but I'm not going to pursue the Lord. I'm not going to fight sin. I'm not going to submit to His Lordship. You're wrapping it up in a handkerchief. Or maybe you try what amounts to theological snobbery, but in our postmodern age today, sounds all pious. Well, I don't really believe in organized religion. I don't need the church. I mean, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Me and Jesus are good. He tells me I don't need anyone else. He tells me I can actually ignore parts of the Bible that I don't like. You are wasting your mind up. You've wrapped it in a handkerchief. Jesus calls you a wicked servant. And folks, think about this. Like, none of us would do this with money. I mean, if someone in here wins that giant Powerball, and we'll talk about that on a different subject, but listen, you play, you win, you tithe. We can talk about the whatnot, but if you do, I expect a check. <laughs> Let's not go with the Powerball illustration. Let's say you get an, an, an inheritance. That'll probably be a little better. You get a big inheritance from a relative. No one's going to take that and they're going to stick it under a handkerchief and stick it under a mattress. But that's what we do sometimes with the inheritance we have from Christ. So what we do with the gospel, we wrap it in a handkerchief. I mean, just being straight with you, when was the last time you shared the gospel? We're doing some elder applications right now, and that's one of the questions we ask on that. And, uh, you know, got different answers, but one of them was just awesome. Uh, <clears throat> the guy wrote a date. And it was two days prior to turning that in. It's like, oh, I did it right here. Da, 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 da. I was like, that's awesome. That's how we're to live. But what about you? When was the last time? When was the last time you shared the gospel? I mean, that, is that not part of what we're called to do as Christians? Well, Joe, at least I'm not sinning. I'm not doing bad things. Well, you're not doing what you should do. That's also sinning. But it's not just about sharing the gospel. We produce spiritual profit by gathering for worship. Hearing the word preached. What you're doing right now, you're producing spiritual profit. By growing in Christ and growing in community. And we do that in groups here. Whether it's a Sunday school, community group, whatever that is. Serving the church and the community. You produce spiritual profit by that. Going to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. You produce spiritual profit. This is how we put the gospel to work. But the wicked servant just sat there. He just wrapped it up in a handkerchief and did nothing. What about you? What about me? And so after trying a lame excuse that Jesus just totally exposes, Jesus tells him, listen, at least, I mean, the bare minimum you could have done is at least put it in the bank. I mean, you could have at least gotten a little bit of return. That would have been better than nothing. 
And so applying that to your life, I mean, Jesus is saying, listen, bare minimum, at least serve a little bit. At least evangelize a little bit. At least read your Bible a little bit. And that's better than nothing. It's not impressive at all, but it's better than nothing. It's not completely wrapping it in a handkerchief. And so I'd encourage some of you who you know, aren't doing that, start, start somewhere. Start somewhere. We've got plenty of places to serve. We've got groups you can get involved with. Read your Bible this week. Start somewhere. No one who's ever done anything gets anywhere without starting somewhere. So start. Start somewhere. Get in a group. Read your Bible every day. Start with the book of John. Start one chapter a day. Do something. But then there's something else we need to notice about this wicked servant that's pretty scary. And it's the fact that he's called a wicked servant. Okay, he's not the out and out, you know, rebel, rebel of verse 14, who's just actively proclaiming, I don't want Jesus to reign over me. No, he just passively does it as one who's supposed to be part of the kingdom. And so a wicked servant is also someone connected to Jesus via the community of faith, but does not know God, has no intention of submitting their lives and their opinions and their judgments and their morality and their inherited traditions or background or upbringing to the Lordship of Christ, whatever that might mean for those things. No intention of doing that. And so exhibit A on this kind of idea is Judas Iscariot. Think about Judas. He was a disciple of Jesus. When Jesus sent out the 72, paired them up and sent them out to go herald the good news. Jesus was part of that. I mean, Judas was part of that. Don't strike me dead for saying that. Judas and Jesus, that's horrible. Judas watched Jesus heal people. He watched Jesus forgive people. He listened to Jesus' words. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000. Right? So he was connected to Jesus via the community of faith, the disciples. And he even had responsibilities within that community of faith. But we come to find out that Jesus does not know Je- that Judas does not know Jesus. That Judas does not worship Jesus as God. That Judas does not follow Jesus and is using him to get another end. And when Jesus refuses to take the crown in Jerusalem and be the geopolitical uh, you know, in, king in that point in time that Judas wanted, he sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. That's a wicked servant, but he's connected to the community of faith. And that happens all around the world in the church today. And we guard against it here at Providence. This is one of the reasons that we don't just accept anybody as members who walks forward and says, hey, I want to be a member of the church. Do you know Jesus? No, I worship the devil, but I want to be a member of the church. Right? We put a screen. Do you know Christ? Do you know the gospel? Do you want to pursue the things of the Lord? All right, come on. And so we do that out of love for people. We don't want to ever give someone false assurance. Well, my name was on a roll, so I'm good with Jesus. And you may not be. 
So we don't. So we, we out of love for people, we have a screen on the front door. But then out of love for God and His church, to be made up of regenerate people—that is, people who believe—so anyone can attend. Anyone and everyone, please come. But actual membership of the church is reserved for those who actually know Christ. But I'm sure we're not perfect on that. I'm sure there are people in this church, as there are in every church, people who may even have positions of responsibilities in the church, but they don't actually know Christ. That's why it's so scary. And they're headed to hell. And so as we lay this good servant who, you know, made a spiritual prophet and the wicked servant who did nothing across our lives. Based upon your life, not what you know, but your life, the way you live. Which one are you? Jesus is going to return someday and he's going to know what you've been doing. And you can't say very little or nothing and expect to hear, well done, good servant. Our lives count. Not just right belief, but right practice. Bearing fruit. Producing a spiritual profit. And so are you? Are you producing this? These are things we have to wrestle with. And listen, pastorally, those of you who should have an assurance of salvation, I'm not trying to take that from you this morning. But those of you who maybe shouldn't, yeah, I am trying to take that from you this morning. We have to wrestle with these things. And if you're not truly of Christ, that you would recognize that and you would realize I've never actually trusted Christ. I've been around the community of faith my whole life, but I've never actually trusted Christ and that you would do so. That you would surrender your life to him and receive the forgiveness and the salvation that's found in him. A lot of times, like in church history, and just John Wesley. You, how many of you have heard of John Wesley? Okay, so most of you have heard of what, you know, if you haven't, you've got Methodist Church, Wesleyanism, all right, John and Charles, they, Charles wrote a bunch of hymns, we sing some of them. John Wesley was like preaching the gospel for years and years and years, traveling around, traveling around, but he wasn't converted. And so then he's on a boat one day from Georgia back to England, and he's riding with these Moravians. I mean, it gets crazy all the way that God orchestrated everything providentially to bring him to this point. And he realizes that he's never trusted Christ and he's been doing ministry for years. And so he gets back, he walks to a church, he goes in, he hears the gospel preach and he prays for God to save him in that moment. And that's when he was converted. Long after he'd been thinking that he was serving the Lord, he'd lived as a wicked servant. And in a moment, God made him a good servant. And he'll do that with any of us. Because we're all wicked servants on our own outside of Christ. It's only in Christ that makes us good servants. Because he's good and we get put with him. And so I don't want to take that assurance from you if you should have it. But if you shouldn't have it, yeah, I do want to take that from you. Because there's a big warning coming here at the end. And it's that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and that's number three in our notes. 
Number three in your notes, we've got kingdom reminders. We've got mission is expected. And the number three in our notes, judgment is coming. And we've already talked about how Jesus is going to return. And he's going to want to report on his investment. He wants to see the ROI that he gets in, in the investment he's made in us. So we know in that way there's judgment coming. But I, I want us to make sure we understand the difference in judgment that is going to take place for believers and for non-believers. Because Christians are going to be judged. If you're a believer in Jesus, you will stand before Jesus to give an account of your life and be judged for varying degrees of reward in heaven. And so like the good servants here, you've got one and he's given ten cities. You've got another, he's given five cities. So God's clearly not a communist. Some people will have more rewards than others. Based upon how they invested their lives for Jesus. Now, every, they're both going to be in heaven, right? So they're not really, I mean, heaven's heaven. But there's going to be some degree, this text seems to indicate some degree of varying rewards in heaven. And so it's not a judgment that Christians will stand before. It's not a judgment to, to determine salvation. Because that was already judged at the cross. For all who believe Christ's death on the cross is a payment for their sin. And so our sin is gone, but that's not enough to merit being able to be allowed into heaven. So not only that, but Jesus gives us his perfect life, his perfect righteousness that's imputed to us. And so we are seen by God, not only as forgiven, but also as holy and righteous not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done and given to us. He's clothed us with righteousness. And so all the honor and all the glory and all the praise for our salvation goes to Christ. We didn't do anything. Jesus paid it all. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this, sin up from the, raised this life up from the dead. And so again, believers in Jesus, they are going to stand someday to give an account and have their life judged for varying degrees of reward in heaven. But non-believers, Jesus teaches that they will stand before him someday to give an account and have varying degrees of punishment in hell. And so verse 27, but as for those enemies, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. I mean, this is a hard word. From Jesus' lips. This is Jesus talking. And what he's doing, he's connecting back to verse 14. If you look back at verse 14. It says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then back to verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And that is a hard word. But I want you to see, even as hard of a word as that is, bring the citizens in front of me and slaughter them. As you keep going in chapter 19, and we'll get to this next week, you get to verse 41. As Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, and he rounds the corner on the Mount of Olives, and he sees Jerusalem out before him, and he begins to weep. 
Oh, how I wish you would have known. How I wish you would have seen. How I wish you would have submitted. How I wish that you would have understand all that's fulfilled in me. And so he's not a king on the throne going, ha, 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 slaughter them. Our king is not a cruel king. He is not a malicious king. But he's also not an unjust king. And so wickedness and evil will be punished. Wrong will be righted. And on the one hand, we want this. We want justice. Hitler and Stalin and Mao and mil- billions of people who've perpetrated heinous acts across history. Yeah, we want God to deal with that. We want God to bring justice. There's so much injustice. We want God to bring justice. And because God is loving, He will judge wickedness and evil. If He was... If he did not judge wickedness and evil, he would not be loving. Oh, you want to brutally rape and pillage young children? No problem. I don't, it makes you happy. Go right ahead. That is not loving. Loving is, that's wicked and that is evil and there's justice for that. And so we want this justice on the one hand. Nobody Greg Gilbert says this, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. That's what we want. But sin and evil will be punished. And so because I love you, I will stand up here and tell you the truth, even when it's uncomfortable. And so the truth is this, you're going to die. 150,000 people around the world will die today. 150,000 more tomorrow. 150,000. We're going to die. And you're going to stand in front of God. And you're going to give an account. And if you're a non-believer in here, you can rail your fist against God all you want and leave this church and never come back and go somewhere where you can have somebody tickle your ears and tell you what you want. But that does not change the fact that this is the reality that you're going to face someday when you die and stand before God. You will die. You will be judged. And the God of the universe with all authority in heaven and earth will say you are a good servant or you were a wicked servant. And so there is no bigger issue that you can think about in your entire lifetime than this. And again, for those of you who should have assurance, I'm not trying to take that from you. But for those of you who shouldn't, based upon the way you live, as you lay these things, wicked servant and good servant, across your life, who are you? Is there any spiritual profit in your life? Are you investing your life for Jesus? Or is Jesus a puppet? You think you can pull the strings to get the things you want. He's a big pinata that you can hit and get the goodies to fall out. Are you investing your life for Jesus or are you wasting your life on things that will not last 
will not satisfy and just wrapping God up in a handkerchief and ignoring him. Maybe a passing platitude towards him every now and then. These are hard questions. I told you in the little write-up, it would be stinging a little bit. But here's the good news. Even if you are a wicked servant, because apart from Christ, all of us are, it's not too late. It's not too late. See, a perfect servant has come to earth and has lived a perfect life for you. And this perfect servant who lived a perfect sinless life because you didn't, he came and did it for you. He laid that perfect sinless life down on the cross and took your punishment. The wrath of God that you deserve for your sin, it was taken from you and it was put on Jesus. And Jesus was a substitute for you so you don't have to bear that. He absorbed it in his body and then he rose again in victory over sin and in victory over death so that anyone who believes and trusts in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And so through faith in what he's done, he will no longer regard you as a wicked servant. He will regard you as a good servant. And again, not on the basis of what you do but on the basis of what Jesus has done. This is the good news of the gospel. We don't get what we deserve. We get what Jesus deserves. And that's ridiculous. When I think about my own life and what I deserve and all that I've done wrong, do wrong, and will do wrong someday, it baffles me. That's why grace is so amazing. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus got what we deserve. And we get what Jesus deserves. But you've got to receive it. It's not default. And Christ is holding it out to you this morning. So receive it if you have not. Trust Him. Surrender your life to Him and His Lordship. For the praise of his glorious grace and your own good. And then when that day comes and you pass away and you stand before God. He will say. Well done, good servant. Not because of what you did, but because of who you loved and submitted to. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to wrestle with this. To just pause right now and just think about who am I? Do I invest my life for Jesus? Or am I someone who's been around the community of faith? Been around the things of God? But I've wrapped it all up in a handkerchief. And so in actuality, you might call us a wicked servant. And if that's what we realize about ourselves, help us then to flee to Christ. To flee to mercy. 
to fling ourselves on the sheer grace that He offers and be redeemed, be saved, be given salvation. For those of us who are believers, God, help us to never be haughty about that. We didn't do anything. Jesus did it all. And help us to invest our lives humbly, recognizing anything that we have in our life is yours and it's been given to us, not to terminate on us, but to bring a profit to the kingdom. And so let us live for you with every ounce of our being and let us cheer one another on as we pursue you and continually reflect on the grace that we've been given and we do not deserve, but that we bask in that you would be so kind to save wretches like all of us. We ask it in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen.